My name is Mark Chansky. I'm the coordinator of the Reformed Baptist Network, and I have with me Pastor Jeff Johnson. He pastors the Grace Emanuel Reformed Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Jeff and I have been friends for many years. And brother, you've been an iron sharpening iron influence on me. And I'm very thankful for the Lord's uh, bringing you into my life and thankful to be able to have some time to talk and discuss. Feelings mutual, brother. All right. So we're, we're discussing, and who knows, maybe we'll call uh, this series of interviews I may do with various people, and we'll call it Net Talk, since I'm the coordinator of the Reformed Baptist Network. We'll see how this goes, and we'll see where this goes. But this time, uh, Jeff and I want to ricochet off some of the conversations that we've been having together as we try to search the scriptures and sharpen each other's sword to be able to comprehend what the Word of God says. And the topic that, that Jeff and I have discussed is the whole issue of the gospel, the gospel which involves justification by faith. And it's a it's a great truth, as it says in Romans 1:16. Uh, for the excuse me, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And praise God for the reality that. It's the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables us to stand before God on the day of judgment. And because of that, we are warmly received as sons instead of thrown out into utter darkness as God's enemies. So we bask in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in reality, it's not just justification that the scriptures focus on, because we need to be ministers and preachers, not just of part of the counsel of God, but uh, Acts 20, the, the whole counsel of God. And over the last couple of decades, Jeff and I have talked about how there's arisen a focus on what's called gospel-centered preaching. And this is a wholesome thing, gospel-centered preaching, but, but sadly, it has in the ministries of many kind of devolved into preaching not the whole counsel of God, but only the partial counsel of God. By that, I mean a preaching that strives to preach on the doctrine of justification, divorced from the doctrine of sanctification, uh, the doctrine of imputed forensic righteousness, divorced from the doctrine of imparted practical righteousness. But what we would say is what God has joined together, those two things, man should not, preacher should not dare rend asunder. Yet, it seems that in many evangelical and even reform circles, such an unbiblical divorce has spread kind of like a, a subtle cancer, for to be gospel-centered often has morphed into the slogan, preach the gospel to yourself every day, which then is heard in the pew to mean, uh, remind yourself of the sweet good news that you're loved, you're acceptance, you're forgiven. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment. There's no hell. You're acquitted. You're vindicated. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Just relax. Clear your mind of the 
bitter hard news of duties and repentance and commandments and obedience and holiness. So that is a note that is being sounded. In fact, many, many pastors committed to what could be called gospel-centered preaching today act seemingly allergic to biblical imperatives and commands and warnings, and many seem even reluctant to preach with urgency about the biblical demand for holiness. I mean, delighting to preach on Ephesians 1 through 3, the indicatives, but not wanting to preach much on Ephesians 4 through 6, the imperatives. Uh, and the question would be, is, is, is could, could, could that be us? And I think we would want to examine ourselves according to the scriptures. Could it be that some of us are reluctant to say to our congregations, uh, tear out your eye because it's better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell? That's Matthew 5, 29. Uh, or even, uh, even how it says in, say, Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the road that leads to destruction is wide, and many are those who enter by it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. It seems in some circles there's a reluctance to say, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, or you'll know them by their fruits. That would be Matthew 719 and following, or some are reluctant to say, not every one of you who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That would be, of course, Matthew 7, 21 and following. And some can even be reluctant to say, like it says in Hebrews 12, 14, pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see, it's, it's real possible to love to preach pardon, to love to preach grace, but the idea of the need not only to preach that grace can forgive sin, but that grace empowers enabling us to repent from sin, turn away from sin, and kill sin. So I've gone on for a bit, Jeff. Any comments you would give just in leading into the discussion, opening up the theme? Well, I to, to emphasize what you said earlier, and I know you believe this, I believe it, justification by faith is certainly central to the gospel. Amen. We have no gospel without it. I've preached a series of messages a few years ago, systematically on justification by faith alone, 10 messages, and then 11th on the implications. And even in that series, kind of making the point that neither our works before or after we're converted, none of those works go into the basis of our right standing with God in his courtroom. It's only Christ's works, his righteousness, his life, his death. So I think we want to be clear, and I know you want to be clear as well. We believe that 100%. It's our only hope. Um, yeah, here, the, the, the point, though, is this. Justification by faith alone is not the entire gospel, um, that the gospel's bigger. And I know most people listening would, would understand that. They would, yeah, amen, that's we, you know, it's more than that. Uh, 
our concern and your concern, my concern is not so much with people that's going to say, let's go out and live wicked lives so that grace may abound. That's sort of off to the left. That's the worst form of antinomianism. Uh, but there can be subtle forms of antinomianism that seep into the church. And that's what I'm concerned about. Mm. Uh, Mark Jones wrote a book back in 2013 called Antinomianism, um, Reform Theology's Unwelcome Guest, question mark. And that... Repeat that, that again. Repeat that again. That's a, that's a catching title. It's called uh, ref, um, Antinomianism, Reformed Theology's Unwelcome Guest. I think it's question mark. And he opened my mind to realize and to understand that antinomianism is larger than just let's sin that grace may abound. It's, it's not necessarily always a direct attack on the law. There are more subtle forms of it historically dating way back centuries ago. And it's those more subtle forms of antinomianism that I think we're exposed to in the, if you will, the reformed world or whatever terminology you want to use that can undermine holiness and the gospel in very subtle ways. That's kind of where my main burden is. It's not off, you know, this off the ranch stuff that's ever most true Christians know, or they know it's wrong. It's this more subtle stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well said, Mac. Let me even read just J.I. Packer's words in the, in the foreword to that book by Mark Jones. Packer says this, Mark Jones monograph is the work of a Puritan minded scholar and theologian who understand these things well, has researched historic antinomianism with thoroughness and has many illuminating things to say about it. His book is a pioneering overview that I commend most warmly, particularly to pastors. Why to them? Start reading it and you'll see. So I think Mark Jones is really coming right down the center of the plate mm -hmm. when it comes to solid reform theology. Right. And he wants to be able to, as we've said, emphasize the whole counsel of God and not merely a partial. And as you said, boy, the gospel is justification by faith. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an ex-Roman Catholic converted at age 17. I mean, my theology was, if I do more goods than bads, the scales of justice will tip in my favor on the day of judgment. But when I got the gospel brought to me, it just blew to bit such a concept, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works that no man can boast. That being said, we are also Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we might walk in them. So it's that, that, that grace, that gospel that rests on the finished work of Christ, done, done, done. But then on the basis of that finished work, there's there's work for us to do, and so it's do, do, do with all of our might. Right. Well, it's it's it to kind of expand on that a little bit is uh, when sometimes when justification becomes sort of the gospel. Again, it's it's foundational to the gospel. It's part of the obviously we can't overemphasize it enough. We're never saying you can overemphasize justification. You can never overemphasize justification. You can never overemphasize sanctification. And we should preach justification in a way where people would accuse us. What shall we sin that grace might abound? Exactly. One of those guys are like, you know, they believe in license or whatever, you know, to sin. Yeah. But for example, I think there's a, there can be a point in which clear texts, which should be challenging us ethically can get explained away. We've talked about this, like Psalm 24, uh, when it says, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord 
and who may stand in his holy place. He who has a who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord. Now, a standard, I would say maybe an antinomian tendency that we're talking about that's more subtle is to say, that's Christ. Only that's Christ in that text. Can't be me because I don't have clean hands and a pure heart. So that's Christ that ascends or that is me, but that's me only because I have imputed righteousness. When neither one of those is the point of the text, that's the text right. actually means what it says. The only people who will ascend to the hill of the Lord, whatever that means or doesn't mean, are those who have actually truly clean hands and a pure heart. And a pure heart there, I understand, you know, and I haven't done a detailed study of the text, but the idea of purity of heart in scripture isn't perfection, it's sincerity your integrity. You're not one person in the dark and one person in the light. You're real is the idea. And you've not sworn deceitfully. You're not out trying to, you know, as we would say, who do people trying to, you know, pull the wool over their eyes. You're real. You're not perfect. I've said it this way. Uh, my kids know I'm not, if I don't, I have no hope that my kids are going to leave the home and say, my dad was perfect. Cause I've already blown that. I do want them to leave and say, my dad was real. Mm. That's what the text is talking about. Mm. You've got to be a real Christian, real righteousness, or you won't ascend to the hill of the Lord. Or another example, if you'll humor me, is when Jesus said in Mark, Matthew 5 20 in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. The response to that is not, well, thank the Lord for imputed righteousness. Because only his righteousness will exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, obviously, there's truth to that. I need Christ's righteousness, or I will not go to heaven. Amen? And in and, and Romans uh, 3, 4, 5, that's exactly what's being talked about. Exactly. There's no way I'm going to heaven, the kingdom of God, without Christ's perfect righteousness. But that's not what Christ is talking about in that text. In the context, he's not talking about imputed righteousness. He goes on to expound, get this the righteousness required by the ethical standards of the Old Testament that go all the way to heart motive. And he's saying the Pharisees and Sadducees were not righteous people, and Jesus is saying you need to kick it up a notch. They had a false pseudo-righteousness based on externalism and a perversion of God's law. And Jesus is saying if you're going to be a part of God's eternal kingdom, you have to have a real practical righteousness in heart and practice as defined by the ethical standards of the Old Testament. That's all. But, that's yeah, what you, but you know as well as I do, there are many who would interpret that text to be able to say, how could my righteousness ever exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? It must be Christ's righteousness credited to my account that right. enables me to be different from the scribes and the Pharisees. Because Jesus goes along chapter 7 and says, this is a part of the, the, the narrow way that leads to life. And the answer to that is, it's still by grace. But grace functions differently at different aspects of the gospel in the sense that uh, his grace and justification is he clothes me with his righteousness. I just receive it by faith alone, apart from works, but his grace also sanctifies me. He gives me the grace to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That's his workmanship. That's his creating. And, or another example is in the same sermon talking about right after he talks about heart lust, heart adultery, he says, pluck out your right hand. I cut off your right hand. It's better to go through life halt and maimed than for your whole body to enter into hell. 
It's better to enter into life, you know, without these parts. Speaking metaphorically of, of dealing with the occasions of sin, that's how radical we should be. No one's going to go to heaven without missing a body part, so to speak. We all have to make, make no provisions for the flesh. Well, the answer to that text isn't, well, you can't do that. You can't pluck out the right eye. You can't cut off the right hand. Just run to Jesus. End of story. Thank God for his righteousness. That's not the point. Jesus that's means. What, that's not what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. Jesus means precisely what those words mean in Greek, now translated into English. If I don't take sin, righteousness seriously at that level, then at the level of heart adultery and lust and all that, then I am not going to enter into life at the end. And that's not works righteousness. It's not meritorious, but it is the way of faith and holiness that leads to life. And those things ought to be preached and said in such a way that, that they actually mean what they say. Yeah, we're not, we're not saying... Subtly, they get undermined because, oh, well, that's something I do. Well, yes, but by the grace of God. You know, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So that's what I'm talking about, a more subtle form that's, that kind of places justification over texts where justification isn't in view, sanctification is yeah. in view. And just to validate, just, just to validate your exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, you look at the context. You, you talk about the Beatitudes where it's speaking of, blessed are the poor in spirit, mm -hmm. those who mourn, those who are gentle, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Mm -hmm. This is really echoing even uh, a Psalm 1 or a, or a Psalm 15 or a Psalm 24, where it speaks mm -hmm. of this is the man who can ascend to the hill of the Lord. And even in the context of, uh, well, you look at right after your righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees, yeah, it talks about if you have hated your brother, you've murdered him. If you have uh, lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery, and then the gouging out the right eye, uh, it's, it's calling for that. In fact, we, I think we all know of the account of the Midwestern pastor who has a woman come to him, and she says, Pastor, I just love this man who's not my husband. I'm having an affair with him. Now, I know I'm going to heaven. I know that my eternity is secure because I am a Christian. But I just can't break off this relationship because it's just so precious and dear to me. And that pastor, who is a biblical man, spoke to her and said, Ma'am, if you don't break off this relationship, you will go to hell. Now, there are some who are aghast at such a thing. And I realize even when the Lord Jesus gives that shocking language of gouge out, cut off, that's hyperbolic. And it's, it's very purposefully uh, mind-boggling. But I think there are times when we should echo that kind of urgency of the Lord Jesus Christ when we minister and say, if you won't forsake this sin, you won't enter the kingdom. That's good pastoring, because even you think of the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount, which is that Matthew 7, which has as the finale, it's the broad road and the narrow road. you, you got to walk the broad road or you're leading to destruction. It's a tree and its fruit, by their fruits. The fruit don't save you, but the fruit is an evidence. Or many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not 
perform miracles. He said, depart from me, you who are doers, practicers of lawlessness, meaning that the life indicates that you don't have the new heart, which is really, as Lloyd-Jones would say, is what the whole exposition of the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's about the man who has the new heart. And, and just to validate, Jeff, that interpretation that you give about that uh, issue of the exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees out of Matthew 5.20, listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says about that. Now, Sinclair Ferguson has his orthodox credentials, doesn't he? But here's what Ferguson says about that, that text. He says, our righteousness must really surpass that of the Pharisees. Pharisaic righteousness was skin deep. Christian righteousness is to be real, just like you said, Jeff, about your kids. Christian righteousness is to be real. It's a new heart. It's not a perfect heart. And like Romans 7 says, when I would do good, evil is right there with me. I don't do the good that I would do with the evil I wouldn't do that I do. But that, that's a real heart, though. Uh, Ferguson goes on this. It is to be a true heart conformity to the law of God. Our obedience to the law is not to be merely external, that's what the Pharisees was, but real and spiritual. Our understanding is not merely superficial, cleansing the outside of the cup, but not the inside of the cup. This is the practical fulfillment of the law that marks Jesus' disciples. They understand that the law is spiritual, Romans 7.14. They respond to it, not in their own strength, but in the power of the Spirit who cleanses and renews their hearts. Well, basically what we're saying is that the New Covenant promise in Jeremiah, three things, three great blessings of the New Covenant. And these blessings are not new to the New Covenant, by the way. It, it's that now all true covenant members have these marks, Okay. One's the forgiveness of sins. Praise mm. God, I'm forgiven, Mark. I am forgiven today. I'm not under wrath solely because of what Christ has done. I'll remember their sins no more. Amen. Christ's righteousness covers me. I'm safe from the wrath of God. Forgiveness, you know, and ongoing forgiveness every day. And, uh, and all will know me. And there's a personal knowledge of God, that intimate famil filial relationship to God. I don't just know about him. I know him. I love him. I fellowship with him. But then it also has, and I will write my law upon their hearts. Now, notice it doesn't say I'm going to replace the law of the spirit or I'm going to write my law. And so you're right. Really, the Sermon on the Mount is an exposition of what does the new heart given to you by grace looks like? Does it look like? And Jesus is saying that that new heart having that new heart and living it out is the necessary pathway to heaven. It's not meritorious because it's his work in us, but it's not his work in us apart from our cutting off and plucking out. And, uh, you know, um, Philippians two thirteen. I quoted it earlier, alluded to it, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both the will and do of his good pleasure. Which one is it? Are you working or is God working? Mark? Yes. Yes. Now, here's the thing. I've been a Christian for 30 years. You know, so, okay, let me put it this way. That verse requires trust. I need to believe and trust that God's working in me. That, that verse also requires me to be doing something. Work out my own salvation fear, along with trust. I've been, on, I've been a Christian for 30 years. I know from my own experience, been a pastor, pastoral experience, bumping up close to 20. 
I've never known of a Christian, including myself, to trust God too much mm. in the process mm. of sanctification. Amen. Amen. I don't Amen. think I've ever met a Christian, including myself, that has tried too hard on the other end either. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I, I would never say, man, I've just, I have really tried too hard to live the Christian life and, and I'm tired of it and I'm just going to trust. I've never, if they're out there, I don't, I've never met the person that's tried too hard. I've never per met the person who's trusted too much mm. or it's it. My point is, is it's a balance. Yes, it is. It, it, one doesn't cancel out the other. Is it God's work in me? Yes. Every time I make any progress in sanctification, it's a work of divine sovereign grace. But according to the scriptures, there's also a responsibility on my part to apply the means of grace, to deliberately think about my steps that I'm, that I'm making. Now, I praise God, Mark, that his work in me and where I'm at in the Christian life has not been commensurate with my effort. That'd be, that'd be, I'd be in bad shape. Mm. We desperately need the righteousness of Christ, our only hope. Righteousness of Christ and the power of grace has gone beyond my efforts in sanctification. What he's done in me goes beyond I praise God. He doesn't say, well, Jeff's done 80% or 50% trying, and then I'm going to give him 50%. No, but you know, it does require sanctification is synergistic. There is the blending of the divine and the human in a mysterious way. Uh, and that's just this reality and both have to be emphasized. Oh yeah. And I even think of the dynamic in the scriptures of the motivations that the word of God brings to us mm -hmm. and how it, it's true that we could say, if you want to put it in, in, in military weaponry imagery, you could say that the Goliath sword of the Christian life is gratitude. Uh, the, the Lord love Jesus, of God for me, that knowing he loves me. Yeah. Amen. Amen. In view of Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, Let's offer Amen. ourselves up as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. It's all, it's all in view of God's mercy. Amen. So the love of God and gratitude, I mean, that, that's the Goliath sword when it comes to fighting the good fight of faith, which we've got to fight. But you know what? In reality, there are times when that, that, that glorious sun of gratitude and, and the love of God gets clouded over like a, like a Michigan November day, right? And it gets downright overcast. We can't see that. And, and then there are other motivations, though, in the scriptures. Like I think of the, the, the text of the, the Matthew 5 about gouging out right eye and cutting off right hand. And you look, if we don't always have the Goliath sword that we use, sometimes we have the dagger in our belt, which is uh, fear of hell. The, 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 um, the idea of the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1, is the fear of the Lord, or uh, Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire, and there are some who want to take out these, these other, other motivations, even the idea, the, the hope of reward to receive the well-done good and faithful servant. We have, a, we have a whole magazine, a whole buffet of motivations that the scriptures give to us, but some want to restrict it just to one idealistic motivation. Yeah, well, and I used to think earlier in my Christian life and ministry that, and I think we would all say that I, no doubt the chief motivation is the love of God in Christ Jesus for me. That's the chief. Amen. I wouldn't say it's the only, but it's chief, right? 
And I used to say, well, sometimes when that motive, I used to, I guess I, I can't remember exactly what I, I thought, because you don't always remember as you're, as you're growing, but I would have seen like a motive of judgment. Hmm. It's maybe more like a carnal motive that you need when the other motive's not working. You know, sometimes we need this, you know, if you're really spiritual, all you'll ever really need is the love of God mode. Well, I've changed my mind about that, okay? Because here's what I mean. Let's see if I can lead you into this a little bit. You know, and I've, if, if you're going down the one of the a dark road somewhere uh, out in the country and you see, and it's rainy and it's dark, and you see a big sign with reflectors on it, bridge out half a mile ahead. I'm sure you've seen stuff like that. Have you ever count, oh, yeah. ever have you ever called up the county and said, I am offended? <laughs> How dare you give me a warning? You know, I want love as my motivation. You know, what I mean, no, that was loving. Amen. I don't want that on an index card, three treats deep in the woods that I have to get out of my car and find. And I don't want it two feet before the drop-off. So God's warnings in scripture are kind. They're loving. Case in point, before there was ever a fall, Adam, don't eat of that tree. Why? Because I love you. Is that what he said? No. He said, the day you eat thereof, you'll die. Well, that was loving, right? That was kind of God. And so I, I see that as a kind, good God behind the warnings that's giving me full disclosure. And I'm so thankful. I mean, um, Psalm 19, uh, by them, your servant is warned, right? We're warned. And so we need promises. We need warnings. Sometimes I need one more than the other. But even if I'm, here's how I've, I've kind of illustrated warnings in scripture. Because if, if, if the love of God's the only motive, right, then you don't need warnings. Why we get so many warnings? Okay. And so I would say it like this. Um, if, if I am, you know, obeying the traffic laws and, and I'm buckling up and I keep my car in good order, then it would be um, really out of touch with reality for me to be so fearful to get in a car. I, I never get in a car and go anywhere. As long as I'm driving, obeying the laws, I shouldn't be fearing imminent death. Right. But now if I'm driving a bucket of bolts, that hasn't had it all changed in five years. I'm going a hundred miles an hour around what we call the S curve. You understand the reference. Grand Rapids in the middle of January and 25 degree weather. And we've just had a snow then I should be fearful that I'm about to die, right? Yes, yes. That's the, way the warnings of scripture work. If I'm doing well spiritually, I see a warning in scripture. I'm just like, well, praise God, I'm doing well. Thank God for that reminder. But if I'm sitting in the pew and I've been toying with pornography and, and or I've been, in, you know, letting myself go spiritually and I hear a warning, like cut off the right hand, pluck out, then that ought to startle me. That ought to blow me out of my, my comfort zone. Praise God for pastors who love me enough to, to do that. Because that's loving. Does that make oh, sense? It's not, yes, it's, not yes. like, it's not like one motive is love, the other motives, it's it's 
it's yeah the one motive is god's love for me but at the same time you shouldn't separate that from the yeah world. yeah well, well said that that the love of a father is willing to uh, well, he who spares the rod hates his son he who loves him is careful of discipline or even you think of even you're, you're you're quoting some old testament texts where you talk about uh adam and you talk about uh other issues but what what do you do it's 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 all over the new testament it's it's all over the sermon on the mount you talk about the the, the fear element about gouge out cut off or you'll be in outer darkness where the worm does not die or i mean think of a of a, of a matthew 24 emphasizing the issue of the the servant who's careless and isn't ready when the master returns, he'll be cut to pieces. That, that's a threat. There's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Or uh, even think of, say, uh, uh, Romans 8, 13. If we are living according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we will live. So profoundly, it's life or death. Or First John 2, the one who says they have come to know him, but does not obey his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's a warning. Uh, if we don't, uh, uh, 1 John 3, if we don't love our brother whom we see, how can we say that we love God whom we do not see? Or, I mean, look at uh, the, the warnings in the epistle of the Hebrews. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that if, uh, let not your heart be hardened. Be not like Esau who sold his birthright. Right for a bowl of salty stew. And, and that's in the context. That is in the context of sanctification. Be not like Esau. Live not for immediate gratification, which is what the, the, the siren song of this world is. Gratify yourself now. Right. Well, it's, it's, that's where I can't come in. It's, I think it's impossible for me to come in Mark Jones' book too much, because one of the things he, he brings out in that book that I think was just masterful and excellent is, and he oh, so you mean, what you mean? You're saying I can't commend Mark Jones' book enough? Right, yeah, right. You are, you are I, very positive about it. Right, okay. very positive, yeah. If I may not have said it the right way, but it, you know what I'm saying. I may have not heard it the right way. May Whatever, you know. But in other words, get the book and read it. It's great. You have to <laughs> parts of it because some of it's technical, but it's really good and insightful. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he makes the point that, okay, we think of gospel as promise, and we think of law as command and what were to do. And at one level, that's true, right? In other words, the gospel is the promise of redemption. We believe it, we receive it. And again, we say, Mark, yes, it is grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Brother, I would be hopeless today if it were not for that. Mm, and I mm, want to make that very clear. Mm. Um, and when we do interviews very often for membership in our church, we've shockingly asked many people, do you deserve to go to hell? Because if they were, if they balk at that, then something's fundamentally wrong. And then we start talking about what's the only ground of your hope. That's the core of our interviews too. And one pastor has said in the past, oh, so your only hope of being right with God and going to heaven is that a Jewish peasant died on a cross. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Because we, we believe the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. so I want to be clear that that's, that we believe that hundred percent. So gospel's promise, law is command, but then he brings, brings out the point that at one level, yeah, okay, that's true. If I remember correctly, he says, yeah, that's true. If I remember what he said correctly, but he goes on to say that the gospel itself, like the teaching of Jesus, for example, mm -hmm. has not only indicatives, 
it itself has imperatives. Mm -hmm. And the gospel itself has warnings. You just quoted them. Look at Jesus' own teaching. The one who knows more about grace alone than any of us could ever know. He's the author of it, right? Gave warnings like, this is how radically you need to deal with sin, or this is how, you know, he, he would bring out these motives and these, he'd bring out promises, he'd bring out warnings. There were commandments. And so the gospel itself can't just be thought of as promise. The gospel itself has warnings, promises, commandments. It promises reward. I mean, Jesus said, when you take up your cross, follow me. He that loses his life will save it, etc." He then brings judgment into view, and he says, the Son of Man is going to come in his glory and re reward every man according to his deeds. Whoa. <laughs> or or the, the, the Matthew 24, 13. Because mm -hmm. of the increase in lawlessness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And that makes you tremble. That's holy trembling. All right. It's holy well, love also, that gives us the warning. Yeah. And the also thing is sometimes when somebody says preach Christ, we won't want you to preach Christ, which of course, amen. Right. But I think sometimes people might mean by that preach Christ as priest. No. Ah. Prophet King, but he's all—he's not just priest to atone for our sins and to intercede. His threefold office of mediator is what? Prophet, priest, and king. Yeah, well so said. The whole Christ to truly receive Christ is to receive the whole Christ. I have to receive him in all three offices. I need to receive him as a guilty sinner whose only hope is what he has done, applied to me continually by his intercession. Well said. Well said. And Jeff, we're on the home stretch here. Let's just touch on that theme we talked about having to do with Old Testament hermeneutic, mm -hmm. dealing with biography. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me just read this little uh, summary here. There has arisen a hermeneutic, kind of a gospel-centered hermeneutic, that has come into vogue that exclusively mines out justification truths from Old Testament biographies but neglects sanctification truths from the same. It's an interpretive grid that basically says Old Testament biographies aren't moral stories for daily life, but gospel pictures for attaining eternal life. And a gospel-centered hermeneutic typically has a practical disdain for biblical imperatives because it fears sounding moralistic. So that, let's take you see David in 1 Samuel 17 in the Valley of Elah staring up the nostrils of Goliath, and the statement is, uh, you're not David. Jesus is David. Jesus is the one who represented us, the Israel of God, so that now because he triumphed over death, we all enjoy eternal victory, period, end of story. Mm -hmm. Whereas you think of how by the time that you get to the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews talks about David and others, and it does speak about how, in reality, when we when we consider David, it's true. Like it says, uh, there, what what more shall we say?" This is the the hall of faith that we're reading from. For time will fail me if I tell you Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David of Samuel and the prophets, who by faith, and look what the emphasis is, 
they were they were warriors. It says who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. In other words, we are David too, in the sense that we must fight our kingdom foes like David fought his kingdom foes. So it's not either or, it's not just Jesus on every page, it's Jesus and you on every page. Expand on that. Yeah, I think that you're right, and you know, because there was a, a statement, well-known preacher made. We don't need to. I think it was who, who originally said, "You're not David." Um, I think that's where it may have originated, or at least I heard from. I won't mention names because it's, it's not about personality or names, and and then uh, and the person may actually agree with us. But the the but my point is is that that phrase became sort of got out there. You're not David, okay? So that story is not about you. It's all about what Christ has done. Just like David represented Israel, Christ represented it, like you said. And it's not either or, it's both. Mm -hmm. um, again, that's that's kind of placing a grid over a text, like we were talking about earlier, to where it really strips the ethical dimension that I should feel from that text. On one hand, I should say, praise God, the giant has been slayed. Jesus did it for me. I was, I didn't, not only was I fearful, I didn't have the power to do it. Where of death is your victory? Where of death is your sting? Amen. He, he slayed the giant for me, and I rest in that victory. But, but that story still has implications about faith. You know, uh, slay, you know who, who's going to rise to the occasion in our generation, and what's the giants of our day? And I'm not talking my about, own giants of. of and I'm not preaching. I'm not saying preach it in an egocentric way where I'm David. You know, but in a faith-based, humble way of saying. Lord, I want to trust you like that. You know, so like the story of Abraham, yes, ultimately overlaying that story is God bringing the seed of the woman through history, and we can see God preserving the line, and we see God bringing forth the gospel. We don't ever want to become moralists in our preaching of such things, but Genesis 22 is a challenge to me. Yes, it is. Why? Isaac. Isaac, Isaac sacrificed himself. You know, and 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 James uses that as a to show that that justification by faith is demonstrated by that kind of difficult situation. You know, God even says in James two that that Abraham was justified by his works. We have to pull back and say, okay, in what sense? In what sense was that true? Faith without works is dead. It demonstrate vindicated his faith. Proved exactly, exactly. Or you take even. Uh, Let's say you're expounding the Old Testament biography of, let's say, Abel. I mean, we would say, like it says in Hebrews 12, 24, that, that uh, Abel's blood speaks a better word. Uh, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, yes. But also, we realize, you look at the life of Abel, he offered a better sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And the offering of that better sacrifice than Cain was indication that he was truly a child of God. Well, because it said that the text says he had respect unto Abel and his sacrifice. Mm. So mm. that the spiritual condition of Abel was, it wasn't just a sacrifice in view. A lot of people get caught up in which sacrifice was it the right sacrifice or not. It was, it, it was, it was Abel. It was his spiritual condition and it was Cain's unregenerate condition that came in view that spoiled that partly spoiled his sacrifice so again there are implications 
of what does it mean to worship God by faith? Um, yeah, or Moses. I mean, Moses, obviously, we see Jesus on that page. Moses is the mediator. Moses stands in the gap between the wrath of God and the sin of God's people. But it also says in Hebrews eleven twenty four, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach, the reproach of Christ, greater riches and the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking for the what, Jeff? The reward. The reward. Is that a carnal motivation? No. No, it's not. In fact, it's not, no. a, merit, it's not a meritorious reward. No, it's gracious no. reward. Yes, yes. I think of Sam Waldron, long ago, I... I, when I was in seminary, I'd, I'd read a paper that Sam Waldron had written. It was on the motivational dynamic of the Christian life. And he, he quoted the old story of the, uh, the Saracen woman who appears in a medieval town. And she comes walking into town with, in the one hand, a pitcher of water, and the other was a, a pan of fire. And an old priest approaches her and says, what are you doing, woman? And the woman says, I come with this pitcher of water that I might burn uh, the, the, the city of heaven. And I come with this pitcher of water that I might douse out the flames of hell so that men might love God simply for who he is. And Sam says, regarding those motivations that the woman wants to burn up and uh, wants to drown out, Sam says, the woman makes herself self wiser than God and wiser than Christ, who gives us warning and reward. Exactly. To appeal to it, us. The really issue comes down to is let every text speak and say what it means. And, and apply it according to sound systematic theology. You know, in other words, when I get those warning texts and those texts that press on me to take action, I know when I hear that, that I'm not being told by God to work for my justification. Yes, yes, yes. But, but, I, but it's coming to me now as a child. A father's telling a child, do this. And, the, and I, there are also warnings. And, and again, I don't go around every day thinking of warnings and, and, uh, you know, and oh boy, I'm you know, I don't feel like I'm about to drop off into the pit or anything like that. That's unhealthy and would harden the heart. In the heart. But those warnings are there. They're like the they're like the, the the sign in the middle of the road in the in the country. I see that and I say, you know, I'm, I don't even go one step past that sign. That's a good warning. Praise the Lord. And, by a, by a gracious and loving Father, it was put there. And that's really I'm going to end with that, Jeff, because our time is gone. But but yeah, the the point of it is that we need to be people who handle the scriptures faithfully and not just preach a partial counsel of God that preaches us the the things that are delightful but you know the, the scriptures are bitter and sweet and we need all both the bitter and the sweet because that's a recipe that's a formula for faithful uh, for 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 safety for us and so for us to say let's preach the whole counsel of God otherwise you you, you got to give us a different bible if we're not going to preach these, this dual emphasis, this multiple uh, dynamic that we find in the scriptures, may, may God help us. And I'm sure, I'm sure we've said things that you know, we could hope the Lord would blow away because we said them inaccurately. But I, I hope that those who listen to us would be Bereans and just just search the scripture and uh, maybe respond back to us. And we're we're all ears because we want to more and more conform ourselves to the scriptures. Now, Jeff, could you close us in a word of prayer? Sure. Father, we do thank you for uh, the whole counsel that you've given us in, in the scriptures. And we 
Thank you that we have hope in Jesus Christ, that truly not one ounce of our own righteousness Amen. gives us a right standing with God, mm. and, it, and it couldn't. Mm. Not even our works as Christians, not even our glorification mm. will ever be the grounds of our justification. Mm. We thank you that it's solely Christ and Christ alone. Amen. We also thank you, Lord, for imparted righteousness, that you mm. really do a Amen. work of transformation in our hearts, mm -hmm. that you give us your good spirit to dwell within us, that empowers us, that amazingly causes us to, as you say in, the, in Ezekiel, you cause us to walk in your ways. And we thank you for this, and mm -hmm. that you give us new eyes and new hearts and new ears to hear your truth. And Amen. so I pray, Lord, that we would indeed embrace a whole Christ, as it's mm -hmm. been said, for a whole salvation. Amen. One that not only justifies, but a gospel that sanctifies Amen. and touches every practical area of thought, motive, word, and deed. Amen. Oh, Lord, we pray in light of our own lack of sanctification, you'd forgive us this day, Amen. wash us in your precious blood, and give us more grace that we might seek to please you before whom we will stand in that great and final day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Jeff. Blessings to you. Thanks, brother. Godspeed.